You've ever heard of Louis Zamperini? Louis Zamperini, uh, the, the, the movie and the book Unbroken are about his life. And um, he first became famous because he was an athlete. He was a famous athlete. He ran in the 1936 Olympics. He ran the 1500 meters in front of Hitler in Berlin. He, in fact, he met Hitler very briefly. And five years after uh, he had uh, raced in the Olympics, he enlisted uh, in the U.S. Air Force to fight in World War II. When he was in the Air Force, he was stationed out in the Pacific, and one day they were on a mission, and they were 850 miles south of Hawaii, and the plane crashed. There were 11 passengers in the plane. Eight of them died. Three of them survived. One of them was Louis Zamperini, and they survived out there in the middle of the sea with some rainwater and some small fish that they ate raw, some birds that they somehow caught that landed on the raft, and they stayed alive. They fought off these shark attacks. They were nearly capsized by a storm. They were shot at by Japanese bombers. 47 days they were out stranded on the ocean. Hard to imagine, isn't it? 47 days. Finally, uh, they made their way to the Marshall Islands, and as soon as they got the Marshall Islands, because they were, uh, it was occupied by the Japanese, they were taken into custody. They were made prisoners of war. They were beaten. They were mistreated. They were tortured. And this occurred for nearly two years. You can see why they make a movie about this guy, right? Because he was gone so long, uh, the Air Force, they declared him missing. They declared that he was killed in action. And so... When the war was over and they took the prisoners of war out of the camp and they brought him home, you can just imagine the kind of welcome he received. He was a hero. Yet for all that he had been rescued from while he was stranded at sea, while he was tortured as a prisoner, he needed another kind of rescue. See, like many soldiers, Louis Zamperini, he suffered. He suffered because of the seeds that were planted in him during his painful experiences and those seeds had taken root in his inner being and they'd given birth to nightmares. He had nightmares of strangling the Japanese guards. He dealt with this kind of trauma by drinking heavily for four years. And after this, one day he heard the gospel. He came to faith in Christ and this newfound faith that enabled him to forgive his captors at a heart level, it enabled him to quit drinking. His nightmares ceased and one day he was able to go back to Japan and Forgive those who had tortured him. Now, I know this is a story for the ages. <laughs> Most of us are not going to go to the Olympics. We, we'd feel good about just knocking out a 5K, walking it, right? And most of us will never endure that kind of physical pain. I mean, I can barely get through a Kentucky summer. But we're not unlike Louis Zamperini. We find ourselves in need of help. In fact, I would venture to say that's why you came to church today. You needed help. And at least to some degree, you're looking outside of your resources that you have to get that help. You could have stayed home, helped yourself, but you're here. And it's my prayer that you've already found some help since you've been here. Engaging with the music and saying the prayers corporately by meeting other of God's people. But I hope you get a healthy portion of help from Psalms 121. Let's read it together. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. 
The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. The word of the Lord. I want us to look at a few things. One is I want us to see our need for help in verse one. Verse two, I want us to see our helper. And in verses three to eight, I want to see how our helper helps us. Or to put it another way, I want to see the what in verse one, the who in verse two, and the how in verses three to eight. So number one, the what, the need for help. In verse one, it's hard to know exactly what the psalmist means when he's talking about the hills or the mountains. It's possible that the psalmist is down in a valley and he's looking up at Jerusalem since Jerusalem essentially sits on top of a hill. And if that's what he means, that the case is that, that the psalmist's knee-jerk reaction in his desperation is to look towards God, the God who dwells in Jerusalem. But it's also possible that he's looking at the hills, he's looking at the mountains, and he has great anxiety. See, for them, a, a hilly landscape created a ready-made hiding place for bandits and for robbers to, to, to pounce on pilgrims when they were passing through. If you took these two possibilities of what the psalmist might mean in verse one, he's really saying, I look to the hill, where's my help come from? He could mean I'm in, I'm in need down here and I look to Jerusalem where God dwells in his temples to come help me. Or I look to the hills where I must travel and I'm scared that someone might jump out and get me. But either way, the point's the same. The psalmist finds himself in a desperate situation for which he does not have a ready-made solution. So do you find yourself in a similar spot this morning? In a place of desperation? A place where you need assistance? Maybe the thing you need assistance for, it's an external threat. I mean, think about Zamperini. He had all kinds of external threats. He had sharks and storms. He had a lack of water and food. He had these hostile oppressors. But he also had these internal threats, didn't he? Especially when he got home. And anger and unforgiveness and a broken spirit. The scriptures identify a similar dynamic of external and internal threats. See, each of us, we face enemies that threaten our external world or our physical bodies. It could be actual people, people who sin against us. That sin might just be garden variety, but it might be ramped up to being sinned against in the form of abuse or violence. It's external threat, something we need help from. It could also be external threat might be the decaying of our bodies or a disease that afflicts us, external. But there's internal threats, right? There's our selfish nature, there's mental illness. We need help. And so when you come up against a problem, what do you normally do? When you come up against a threat, what do you normally do? Whether it's internal or external, what, what comes most naturally to you as a response? Well, maybe is you bury your head in the sand. You ignore that there's a problem. It'd be too painful to look at, right? You just want to keep on going, chugging along. Or you see a threat, you have a problem that's in front of you, and you just lay down in despair. You automatically act like your problem is inevitably going to conquer you. Or you can do what I do, what I usually do, when I have a problem, when I face it head on. See, if you face it head on, I mean, 
You, you take stock of the resource at your disposal. You think, who can help me? Who's the expert here? Who's the guru? I need a counselor. I need my parents. I need a boss. I need pastors. I can fix my problem. I mean, all these people, they're professional problem solvers, right? Find experts. You might gather some information. I mean, Lord, help us, WebMD. You buy a book. You find articles via Google. So you get your experts. You get for your information. You put together a plan. You execute the plan. You evaluate the efficacy of your plan on the back end after you've implemented it. So you might do a better job the second go-round. Does this sound like anybody in the room? But how arrogant. See, I don't look to the hills. I think it's a waste of time. I get just busy fixing my own problems. I know better than to say that I'm omniscient or omnipotent or omnipresent, but I routinely overestimate what I'm actually capable of, especially when it comes to solving a problem. And I do this even though I, I know that when I try to solve my own problem, it's just going to create a maze of torture for myself and others. I do it even though I know I'm going to be exceedingly weary after trying to fix my own problems, but I do it anyway. See, that's what comes natural to me. I try to fix my own problems. I don't look outside of myself for help. But what is it for you? Do you just lay down and let your problem conquer you? Do you bury your head in the sand and ignore it? Or do you try to fix it like me? See, if you look outside of yourself for help, when you do look to the hills, it's a miracle. And I can testify that help is available in God alone, who is our ever-present helper. I mean, look at verse 2. I mean, almost as quickly in verse 1 as the psalmist has the question arise from within himself, in verse 2 he comforts himself almost immediately, and he remembers that God is his help, and boy, is God qualified. Look at it. The psalmist says that his helper is the maker of heaven and earth. I mean, what a resume. I mean, that means if he can create the heavens and the earth by the sheer power of his word, how much easier is it going to be for him to deal with your problem? I mean, there's never been a problem too difficult for him to solve. I mean, think about what we've been looking at with Abraham and Sarah. You got a barren woman who's 90 years old and her husband's 100 and they have a baby? Not a problem for God. Fix that one. Or think about when they're at the Red Sea and in front of them is the sea, behind them is an Egyptian army. Seemed like a big problem. Not for God. He just parts the sea. Think about when they're wandering around in the desert. They don't have a meaningful food source or water source. Not a problem for God. He just makes water come from a rock and bread to rain from heaven every night. Now, I, I know it can feel like when you need help that you're in a pit and you can't get out of it. I know what it feels like when your problem sits on you like a 500-pound gorilla. But there is someone who isn't intimidated by your problem. You might call him the problem guru. He's God. And he's the maker of heaven and earth. But what's his help actually going to look like? That's what verses 3 to 8 line out. But look at verses 1 and 2, just the pronouns. Look at the pronouns in, in verses 1 and 2. You, you have I, my, 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 first person, right? The psalmist isn't being preaching in verses 1 and 2. He's just giving testimony. He's talking about his own experience. And then 
he uses different pronouns starting in verse three till the end of the psalm, verse eight. You see what they are? It's you, second person. See, the psalmist is so confident in God's ability to help that he wants others to get in on the action. Another thing that's worth noting is that the second person pronoun is singular. It's you, not y'all. Or like I say from Northern Kentucky, you guys. It's singular. That means that God's help is intensely personal. He's not just this powerful God who made heaven and earth and now he stands at a distance. No, no, he's affectionately helping those whom he loves. What does that help look like? Well, look at the verb that's repeated repeatedly. I mean, repeated six times. You see it in in, in verses three, four, five, seven, and eight. You have that verb watch over. But it's used a six times. It's translated differently. It's just translated as keep. All of them are the same word. Six times, six verses. Psalms is trying to get something through to us. He's trying to tell us what this help is actually going to look like. And what it looks like is that God is exercising diligent care over his people. The same word is used to talk about keeping a garden or a shepherd keeping his flock or taking care of your household. All are ways of keeping. And God is taking care of you in that way. His help is diligent. It's particular. It's personal. And you get a sense of what it's like with all these metaphors in verses three to eight. Let's let's look at each one. The first one's in verse three. Verse three says, God will not let your foot slip. See, in the range of meaning for slip, sometimes you could go with totter, you could go with shaky. And so what the psalmist is saying is that when you feel insecure, God is with you. When your life feels unstable, God is stabilizing you. Doesn't that ease your fears and anxieties? God will not let your foot slip. It might be shaky, but he's not gonna let you fall. Look at the next one. It says that God never slumbers or sleep. I like this one, mostly because I can't sleep. I'm terrible at it. But see, we can sleep because God doesn't. God is giving us round-the-clock care. He doesn't take shifts off. His help is unrelenting. He's never neglectful of his duties. He never slumbers or sleeps. Look at the next one, shade at your right hand. He's talking about weather here. There's the heat of the day and there's the cold at night. And so there's this metaphor for us living in a world or this broad environment that's harsh, that even has evil realities present. And that's what God being the shade at your right hand is such a good promise because he's protecting you. But notice what he's not saying. He's not saying your life's gonna be cushy. He's just, gonna, he's just saying that he's gonna be with you in the suffering. You take these three metaphors, this not letting your foot slip, God not sleeping, he's, your shade at your right hand, all these are in the present tense, but the last metaphor, the fourth one, the one in verses seven and eight, it's a strong one and it's sweeping and it's about his future care. It says that he's not gonna, he's gonna keep your going out and your coming in. See, God's with you wherever you go. You can go out, meaning you can go out of experiencing the fellowship of God and you can rebel all you want. (laughs) You really can. You're not gonna enjoy it very much. I mean, not not if you have the spirit. 
but God's going to be present with you. And then when you come back in and you want to come back and you come to your senses like the prodigal son and you want to enjoy life with your loving father, he's with you there too. See, if you're in Christ, you can't screw up your life to the degree that God's going to leave you. He's going to keep your going out and your coming in. So brother and sister, will you look to the hills this morning? I know you're in the valley. I am too in many respects. We all need this kind of help. We, we need the kind of help that watches over our going out and our coming in. We need the kind of help that's constant. We need the kind of help that allows us to withstand evil. We need the kind of help that's going to be with us when life is shaky. And I can promise you that if you'll look to the hills, you can find that help. In fact, if you look up the hill this morning, you'll find that help. See, Jesus climbed a hill, the hill, the hill of Golgotha. And when he climbed the hill, he hung on a Roman cross. He was falsely accused. He was betrayed by those who were closest to him. He was a victim of religious and civil oppression. His body was torn limb from limb and all, even though he had done nothing wrong. In fact, he'd only done right in the eyes of God, and that's what makes him eligible for the worst part of his punishment. I mean, I know that whole list is bad. I mean, being betrayed by your friends, being a victim of oppression is bad, being torn, your body being torn limb from limb, all that's horrible. But the worst part was that Jesus absorbed the wrath of his Father on our behalf. See, it was then, it was when Jesus was on the cross and he was experiencing that wrath that the Father wasn't his shade at his right hand. It was there that it seemed like God was slumbering to Jesus. Right there, it looked like God had let his foot slip forever. It looked like God had not kept his going out and his coming in. And the truth is the Father didn't help him. The Father didn't help him when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All Jesus got was crickets. But brother and sister, this is why Jesus can be your help this morning. See, the only reason we can be watched over with such tender care that we don't deserve is because Jesus gave up the care that he deserved. And now Jesus is on the move. Jesus is aggressive and doling out his care to all those who need this kind of help, all those who cry out to God as helper. And brother and sister, if you do, you will experience firsthand all those things in verses three to eight. You'll experience his going out and your coming. And you'll be able to look back on your past days and your most rebellious moments. You'll be able to see, God was with me. <laughs> he helped me. You'll be able to look back and say, gosh, God kept me from all kinds of evil because he was the shade of my right hand. It's unbelievable. You'll, you, you'll be able to look back and say, he never slept or, or slumbered on me. You'll be able to look back and say, man, I, I thought I, I was really shaky. It was, my life seemed like it was tottering, but he was holding my foot up. Because that's the kind of help that God wants to be to you this morning, brother and sister. So will you cry out this morning? Let's pray. Oh, Father, may this be our testimony, <laughs> that you've been our helper. And Lord, I pray for those who feel especially weak and wounded and 
maybe exceedingly tired from trying to fix their own problems. Lord, I pray they cry out to you. Lord, I pray you'd give us the long view. And Lord, that the, ex- that the expectation that we might have is that we're just soil, that things that are healthy take a long time to grow. And so, Lord, I pray that we would experience your long-term, persevering help in our lives. We pray these things in your name. Amen.